Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode. We're going back to our regular style of programming this week, with just myself and Alan talking about an iconic screenplay from the 21st century, and this week's topic is going to be The Royal Tenenbaums, which was written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, and released as the feature film directed by Wes Anderson in 2001. Now, with the lockdown resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic, both myself and Alan have had to think about whether or not we would continue making this podcast, and one of my concerns is the audio quality now that we cannot record together in a home studio-style setting. However, we decided that we do still want to keep bringing you new episodes as often as we can, and that right now there's no specific reason why we can't continue doing our regular research and our screenplay analysis and film criticism. But as we don't make any money from this, and obviously we are now entering into some very uncertain times, you will notice the audio quality is a little different. Hopefully we can get some funding eventually to change that, but for now I'll just say I think the content is just as insightful as you are used to. And hopefully any of the background noises are sufficiently minor to not really bother you while you're listening. That being said, this episode, like every other episode up until now, is completely ad-free at the time of posting, and so if you enjoy the podcast and the material we're creating for you, please do let us know or show your support in any other way you feel is appropriate. Anyway, I think that's enough of an update from me right now, so let's get straight into the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined virtually this time by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Hi, everyone. And today we are going to be talking about The Royal Tenenbaums, written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, directed by Wes Anderson. And this is Wes Anderson's third film as a director. And I think this is something that I feel he's really found his voice with this screenplay and with this film in general. You know, I think he has a very specific way of telling a story, not just visually, because it's a given that his movies are very visually specific and unique to sort of his vision. But I think reading a script gets all there, too. You know how he constructs a very specific style and tone and and the way he creates these scenes and dialogue with the characters. That's the, the first thing that kind of jumped at me with reading the script is this is probably one of the more unique and more sort of detail-oriented scripts that we've gone over. And I really wanted to kind of tear it apart a little bit as to like what makes it unique and what what did he bring that was different from other scripts that we've read and what what is the strength of that. I was very excited by reading the script because, you know, it's all there, his intention with characters and and scenes. Yeah, I would say that The Royal Tenenbaums is the exemplary Wes Anderson film, it really set out for audiences for the rest of the 21st century, essentially, what to expect from a Wes Anderson film. Many of them seem to have found their origins in what happens in the Royal Tenenbaums in terms of the visual identity of the film, as you mentioned, the style of semi-nostalgia, semi-retro, but also somehow set in the modern day the framing of the shots as well, this use of symmetry and color, which is a very key part of his identity as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked about screenplays in the past that there is always a difference between screenplays that are written 
by the director who knows how they're going to put this on screen and your average spec script where it's something that's going to be shopped around for a while and then go through a lot of changes depending on who ends up getting attached to the project later on and what the producers kind of have set out. I would say reading The Royal Tenenbaums, it feels very much like his vision for the film is what comes out of the screenplay. It's it's a place to keep notes and to structure the story. It's interesting how we've talked in the past about things like props and the introduction of character traits and key lines of dialogue. And Wes Anderson plays around with these things where he also puts in ambiguities, ironies, little things that are just very specific to what he wants to say. I think in a literary sense almost, he's hiding little things which he hopes people will go and explore to uncover, but he's not maybe as blunt as I think most other screenwriters are, where they really try to get straight to the point and only communicate key information. He just has this very good way of saying a lot with very little. You know, when we're first introduced to all these characters, there's, for example, Margot is described as someone who was very secretive and the family didn't find out that she was a smoker. These very simple little things that reveals a lot about a character. When you mentioned ambiguity, there is a lot of ambiguity with a lot of these characters and you would read the script and you could feel like there's not that much depth or that there's just maybe one note to each character. But the way he constructs the scenes and the way the comedy kind of plays, that's how the characters are communicating. One says one line, the other one says one line, and there's this very pregnant gap in, in a lot of these scenes. And that's usually really funny, or it can usually invite, I think, the audience to fill it in for ourselves. And I think that's what makes the, the story so exciting. Yeah, one of the things that really stood out to me reading The Royal Tenenbaums I think we inherently know by this point the kind of pacing that comes with a Wes Anderson film. But actually reading the screenplay, it was surprising how short so many of the scenes are on the page and that they really only do have less than a dozen lines of dialogue, sometimes less than six lines of dialogue in a scene. And he's written it that way and it feels very empty on the page. Mm -hmm. And yet there's just so much filling the screen when this is in the cinema that it's it's a completely different experience it's because he fills the background he grabs your attention through colors and costume and set and the actual framing of of each image that it never feels that way it never feels sparse and it's a very interesting technique it's a difficult one to emulate i think as a writer because what I think is needed when you are trying to write in this style is that care for the characters. Trying to demonstrate as much as you can about the characters through not just exactly what they say and do, but also how they react to each other, how they carry themselves, the secrets that they have, how you would reveal those secrets, how you, how you link different things, for example these props that are kind of around the house, like the boar's head that Royal Tenenbaum himself is so proud of, for example. These seem like really minor details in the nice. screenplay, but if you, if you were reading this as a novel, it wouldn't seem so minor. And I think that's kind of the intention with what Wes Anderson 
and Owen Wilson were really setting out to do here is to give it that sense of this being a literary adaptation, even though there's no mm. book that it's actually based on in the first place. Yeah, although it's supposed to be a book. I like how there's all these different chapters and we see like the beginning of the chapter and we get a close-up of like the first sentences. I thought that was a really cool story device. And those sentences are from the screenplay. They are actually the first lines underneath the scene heading, which I thought was very funny. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Uh, but I do feel like you're right. Like there's a lot of these small sort of subtleties that are there in the in the characters. But I think another thing too is just you need to have full on collaboration. I think with your actors because this is something that I think is very specific to Wes Anderson too. There's a very specific way of acting as well. I was reading up on how Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, she trusted the director, but there was a part of her that wasn't sure if it was working because she was being asked to do very specific weird things that as an actor you don't usually do like okay after you say this line you don't emote you just just let it you know just don't say anything and just uh hold it it's very specific you know i can i can see those moments too on every scene like okay so he's gonna say this and then it, there's just gonna be like a pause so she she mentioned that there would be a lot of pauses in the scenes that they had to do and um so you just have to trust him and kind of go along with that but that's what i mean like he i think found a very specific way of comedic timing and also storytelling. I, he's one of my favorite directors because of that, because he has a very unique voice and he's always very true, I think, to that voice. I think you see all his films and even though, you know, one could be about, you know, a, a kid falling in love for the first time or Grand Budapest Hotel about this guy who's reliving his life. They're all very different stories, but it feels like the same voice. And I think that's something that's to be celebrated. I think how you brought up the comedic aspect as well, that's another explanation that perhaps isn't immediately evident when you're reading it as a screenplay is actually the fact that some of the details are included because they hit a note of irony or they simply are funny when presented blankly on screen like that and mm. it's something that when you're reading it just seems like the writer is steering you a little bit away from the key moment of the action and what's actually happening in the scene but in reality what happens is when it's on screen it gives those moments that are actually funny mm -hmm. that time to shine and yeah. i i don't know what you would describe royal tenenbaums i suppose falls somewhere on the scale between comedy and drama, but probably more on the comedy side than the dramatic mm -hmm. side. But it mm -hmm. certainly has enough of a heart and a lot of themes to delve into for you to consider it at least a little bit drama as well, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, the story itself is kind of, if you were to take the log line, you have this older man who's been, I guess, in a way, banished from his family, and he's trying to reconnect with them by well, lying to them and telling them that he's dying. But nonetheless, at its core, it's a story about this man trying to reconnect with, you know, his wife and children. You know, at the heart of it, that is what the story is. And it's about this, this integration of a family and the union of it. So, yeah, I think he's using the comedy to tell what I feel is a very sort of universal story. You know, I think anyone can sort of relate to that because what he did brilliantly, I think, is to define each character or each member of the family so well 
and not just define each of them, but to define the relationship that they have with each other. And I think that's what keeps you engaged in the story, because in every scene, you are very well aware of what everyone feels about the other. You're seeing all these very different characters interacting with each other. I think that, to me that the heart of it is about these characters, and this is what the film did really well. Yeah, so let's get started on the actual story. The opening is with a book, and I paused it because that's the beauty of having these things on, on Blu-ray these days, is that you can actually examine the frame, and the Royal Tenenbaum's book itself is supposedly a work of fiction written by W.R. Wales, a professor of English at Metropolitan College. So it's already kind of stating <laughs> up front that this is a work of fiction. This isn't trying to tell you this is a film based on a true story or anything like that. It's, it's celebrating the fact that it is a work of fiction. Yeah. And again, uh, I think, as I said just previously, that, that sense that this is in some way a literary adaptation without there actually being a book there is creating that sense that the world in which it takes place is in some way real, in some way a world you can get lost in. It's, mm. it's kind of putting that forward in that sense of, this is a book, you can get lost in it. Mm -hmm. But also, if you get attached to the characters, you know you're getting attached to people who don't exist. Mm -hmm. it's, it's being upfront about that and, and playing around with your expectations because you feel well, they're not real, I shouldn't get attached to them, and yet these are some of the most iconic characters that Wes Anderson has developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the way the story starts, I don't even know if you would call it a prologue, but it's very much centered around giving you the history of each of these characters, of each of the family members. And I think it was very smart of him to do that, I think, ultimately, because... You know, as an audience member, if you don't resonate with any of these characters, then you get the opportunity to get out. You know what I mean? So if you stuck through every single one of these characters and now you're off and running because now you know them very well. So in every scene after that, there's going to be something going on. Um, so I very much enjoy that. I, I, it's, it's different in that sense, too. You know, we're spending the first 10 minutes literally going over the history of not just the family, but of each individual character, giving them the sort of quirk, giving them a sort of one note in a way, you know, kind of what's driving them in the story, which I thought was really smart. So it's almost like kind of what I got from the writing aspect is like the writers are kind of laying out their cards. You know, this is who you're going to be spending the next two hours with. These are your players and then go off and running with the story. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's giving us context, and context is important. It's, it's essential, actually, in a film context, because it allows you to then see later scenes with that knowledge that you know what it is referring to from the past as well. And... Mm -hmm. This prologue, it does seem to take a long time on the page. There's so much description and you're you're being introduced to a lot of characters and I was surprised then watching the film after reading the screenplay to see how quickly all of those things were addressed. And mm -hmm. it's literally moments on screen. It's introduce a character and it's the visual identity of the character, the fact that there's so much coherence between how the child actors are dressing 
and how the adults look as well, that you can easily link them in your mind to who oh, yeah. they become. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this whole beginning, I think, is essentially to communicate as quickly and efficiently these key traits and who these characters are. And also, I think, to start to identify one of the underlying themes of the Royal Tenenbaums, which is to do with the idea of genius Mm. and whether anyone is actually a genius or is this something to do with the way that we lift up children with talent beyond what they should be expected to really be. All of these children get treated as if they are so much more special than other children that when they grow up, they can't possibly live up to all the expectations that are being put on them. Mm. And that's a very key part of why we rejoin their story at the ages that they are later on in the film. Mm. It's because enough time has passed for them to go from that idea of being child prodigies to being essentially adults who have developed neuroses, essentially like neurotic disorders as a result of being treated this way for all of their childhood. They're very privileged kids. They're like their parents give them as much as they can. And I think we might talk a little bit about some of the influences that Wes Anderson had for this film as well. One of them was The Magnificent Ambersons, which was a Orson Welles film, which even though it's not really a comedy, The Magnificent Ambersons does focus on the decline of a old money family, essentially, in the face of a changing world and it's set at the end of the 1800s and again revolves around a large house with a large family and this inheritance of money that's going down and his spin on it is the comedic spin on this tale but the house itself is very central as well Mm. to the tale he's trying to tell because it links all of these people together in many ways the royal tenenbaums don't even feel like a family because they're such individuals. Chaz is this entrepreneur, businessman. Margot is a playwright. Richie is a tennis player. And the parents are divorced. And it feels like they've already started separating as a family. What unites them is this elegant home in which they all live. Yeah, I think it was 17 years since they had all been living together. And they all come back because of Uh, different circumstances but at the crux of it is you know that their father is dying supposedly Uh, and i think that that's something i really wanted to bring up too in terms of setting up the story and setting up the structure of the story you have very much an ensemble piece in which you have a lot of different characters with each character having their own specific want and their own specific character arc so how do you juggle all these different characters because sometimes it can be a little bit too much when you're being given so many different characters to kind of root for or care for. But I think because it's all revolving around Royal, Gene Hackman's character is driving the story. I don't think he's in it that much more than any of the other characters. I think he's definitely the the lead. His story is kind of the one that everything is revolving around. And I think it was very needed for this film, I think, to have that structure, to have kind of the one thread that's kind of pulling all the other threads along. Even though, you know, Richie and Margot's storyline doesn't really 
have that much to do with their father's impending doom. Nonetheless, he was the catalyst that brought them back together. So, you know, you have all these different storylines that are kind of brought into the mix because of this one major storyline. So I thought that was very smart for the for the writers to do because then the film feels more like it has more of a flow as opposed to just a bunch of different scenes with different characters wanting different things. And it doesn't feel like it's sporadic like that. It definitely feels like it's all flowing somewhere. And then once we get to the very end, it's a nice bookend to the whole thing. So I think it was, for, for writing anyways, I thought that was a pretty good tool to have, is to have one thread kind of guiding the other ones along. Yeah, I think one thing that really creates good characters is the ghosts that they're haunted by, the things that happened to them in the past that they can't entirely move on from. Mm-hmm. And by having this opening prologue scene as well, we get a little bit of a sense of the things that are going to define their perception of the past. If not what really happened, it's more about how they perceive what happened to them in the past that really is important. And we see how when Royal is involved in their family life, when they are children, it's often in a negative way. It includes him taking Richie out to dog fights and it includes him (laughs) turning up at Margot's play and telling her that he didn't think it was very convincing even though it's a play written by a child and it's it's the way he just turns up in their lives and seems to just make everything worse that's something that he tends to have forgotten later on when he's coming back to make amends is how the children themselves would have perceived him when they were children. Mm -hmm. And with Etheline, of course, his his still wife, they've been separated for the entirety of that time, but they never officially got divorced. And of course, that ties into this legality, the issues surrounding who owns the house, who owns the family wealth, all of this stuff, which, of course, Royal is squandering all of the family wealth by living in a hotel for the remaining years. And he's broke now, which adds to his character. You know, the fact that it wasn't just that he wanted to be with his family, is that he kind of was broke, and he that was his ultimate motivator. You know, but it's it, he's one of these fascinating characters where he does terrible things but he does it with such charm that you're just kind of you know sucked in a little bit i think uh the way the character is portrayed by gene hackman too kind of gives him the warmth that i don't think if it was there you'd be as involved in the story as you would have it would be a much much darker comedy i think but he changes as a character you know by spending time with his grandchildren and like trying to reconcile you know he does go through that arc yeah i thought that was good Yeah, he is a scoundrel, but there are points towards the end of the story where the fact that he is a risk taker and that he is inventive in in terms of his strategies, that it actually comes to be a positive as opposed to a negative. Mm -hmm. And those kind of characters are really compelling, leaving the center of the action to the character who most needs to change, I think, is is an important way to structure this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Each character kind of goes through their own little journey, but ultimately you have the patriarch kind of leading the way and, and bookending it as well. So yeah, so you know, right after the 10 minutes of 
or so of introducing all these characters, the story kind of gets going. And again, it's very much Royal who kind of gets the ball rolling. You know, he gets kicked out of his hotel and we find out he's broke. We know that uh, Pagoda, uh, you know, he's uh, helping him a lot. (laughs) I love Pagoda because he rarely says anything. You know, and I think I noticed halfway through the film in most scenes, he's just there in the background. Um, and then all of a sudden, I just thought that was hilarious. I don't know if that was intentional from uh, Wes and Owen. It's just to have this character who's just silently judging everyone all the time. And he's just like in the background. And after a while, I would just constantly like look to see Pagoda's reaction to everything happening around him. I thought that was really, really funny that they have this. I don't know, this character who's not really there, but to serve some sort of comedic element to it. Anyways, uh, so yeah, so we, we get started with them as a team. And then we go into catching up where all the other characters are, too. And now we have a good sense of who they are a little bit and where they are now. What they're sort of lacking or the neurosis they've developed, like you mentioned. And then sort of, I think, uh, Eli played by Owen Wilson. I think he's one of my favorite characters. I think he's a, he's not part of the family by blood, but you know, he's obviously a family friend and I feel like his character is just as important as the other ones too, just simply because kind of what his involvement in a lot of their stories does to, to their characters and how it pushes them. We find out that Richie is in love with Margot. So we start on that storyline, but it's told to Eli through a letter. Uh, so now that Eli has this information, it's almost like he's kind of the the catalyst himself, you know, by then telling Margot what's going on and creates this very interesting dynamic between Richie and Margot with the audience because we as the audience know, but Richie doesn't know that she knows. So I always, I always find that in a story, that's an always interesting tool to use for your audience as to keeping them sort of like in the loop. It's always interesting to read a script and see when a writer decides, oh, this is where I'm going to hold this piece of information from the character or from the audience. I always feel like those are always very important choices uh, to make in the script because that's when you're kind of deciding what the beat is and what the feel is for that particular note. Hmm. So when you were saying earlier about what you think this film is about what I think this film is about ultimately is about second chances and that every single one of these characters is in need of a second chance in life. Mm-hmm. And with with Richie and Margot in particular, it's that we know what their promise was as children. And then, of course, we get a bit more of that information as the story progresses as well about Richie's breakdown how he ended up on the ship that he's been exploring the world on. Again, in this very Wes Anderson style of... These characters are almost imperialists, I suppose. They live in this kind of colonial era that people still go out on exploration missions and things like that. And <laughs> well, it's it's a very weird time to be set in, but... Well, that's really funny. I wanted to mention that specific thing you just said, too, is that, you know, he's in a, he's on a cruise that's mostly with old people. You know, everyone's old except him. And I think that's another way of showing a funny way or a quirky way of showing kind of what this character is going through. Obviously, he's depressed. I mean, he's in a ship full of old people. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we see Margot again, she's in a bathtub watching TV, smoking cigarettes. Obviously, she's not well. But it's a funny image. I love that he does that. You know, he's able to... Oh, or when we are introduced to Chaz, you know, and he's having a fire drill with his two little boys. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's it's funny, but it tells you what these characters are going through and sort of their, their crux at that moment. Absolutely, yeah. So Chaz's second chance isn't necessarily anything that is even his fault. There was an accident, but he's trying to overcorrect and he's become this paranoid, overprotective parent who is essentially stifling his children. Mm-hmm. And there is something, again, in just how iconic their costume is and the way they all dress exactly the same, but there's something very symbolic in that as well, I think, which mm. is just how, obviously, sons look up to their fathers at that age, but there's also something a little bit wrong about it. There's something a little bit sinister about the fact that they're wearing exactly what he does, and they look exactly like little clones of him. It's very humorous on screen, but also there's just that sense that he's kind of a bit too overbearing a presence in their lives that they're not really free to kind of express themselves as individuals in the way that Chaz, Ritchie and Margot were able to do when they were children. We see them as just such different individuals leading very different lives, even from such a young age. And you compare that to Ari and Uzi and they are copies of each other and copies of their father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, since you're talking about second chances, I think the theme relates to him as him being on the on the other side of that. It's about him giving a second chance towards his father because he's the one that holds yes. the most resentment towards him. So I think he comes into the theme as well as being on the other side of that. You know, you have people who are seeking their second chances and other people who are waiting to either give it or not. And I think you can find little things for each of the characters for ethylene it is a second chance at love but also royal has to have a second chance at reconnecting with his family but he also needs to free ethylene up to go her own way Mm -hmm. and find love different characters interact with each other in terms of their ability to give that second chance to another one as well yeah yeah so it is a complicated screenplay this one Certainly because it's it's very character-driven. There are a lot of different characters to keep in mind. And even with such short scenes, it's a big jumble of information that for us to kind of pick apart and figure out exactly what is going on with how this story is constructed. I feel like most of the scenes are not that long, except if it's a scene with all the characters in it. I think there's those few what would you call it, game changer scenes, you know, like towards the end, the the wedding or when everyone gets together for the first time to talk to Royal. How do you juggle how many different characters? You have like 10 different characters almost. You know, you have the family of five and then you have all the other supporting characters. But he's very good at also linking characters who, for example, Richie eventually links with Rally, who's played by Bill Murray. But yeah, I, I, I was not able to find, a, I guess, a sort of a way I could articulate how it's constructed in terms of the best way I can say is that it feels a bit like a play in the sense that, you know, you have scenes in which seemingly not that much is happening, but you're given a lot of 
laughter and through the laughter, I think you're getting to know these characters a whole lot more. Yeah, I, I would say that despite having read this and watched the film and really looked into it and taken notes that it's hard for me to figure out exactly how this story was constructed. I feel that it is based around one single route, which is the story of Royal himself, but that in order to construct this screenplay, you essentially need to isolate characters, check that their character arc is going from a point A to a point B at the end, and that this transformation occurs at some point during the middle through the interaction with other characters. Mm. And that essentially this second chance motif kind of is allowed to come to the fore for basically every character at different points. It's, It's not just maybe second chances, but also the fact that there's a sense that in order to get stuck and in order to get depressed, a character needs to be living a life that is not getting them what they want, but they're repeating the same action and expecting a different outcome to the point that they're getting frustrated with it Mm -hmm. or just giving up entirely, which can be considered a strategy as well. You know, the strategy was to just give up. We get that with, with Richie. We get that with Margot, for example, this sense that they feel so stuck in life that they've just stopped Richie stopped playing tennis. Margot's, I think it's mentioned that Margot stopped writing plays seven years ago. There's no forward momentum. And so when a character ends up in that kind of situation, you need another character to come and push them forward unwillingly mm-hmm. because willingly they're not going to do anything. And that's the other dynamic, I think, at the heart of the Royal Tenenbaums is that there's a chain reaction royal turning up and reimposing himself on the family sets off this chain reaction that leads everyone to come back into contact with each other mm-hmm. and therefore transform each other in the process yeah that is very much the catalyst basically the idea is of having different pillars in your story so if you're constructing a script you have sort of like different emotional big beats so it, it's kind of the next step from, let's say you have your beginning and you have your end in this in a script. And I think most people tend to write that way. But but then you implement, okay, so what are like kind of the five main story beats? You know, the main beats either could be mostly probably emotional for the characters, going from one beat to the other, and then you're filling in, well, how do I get from this one to this one, to this one to that one? And then that's a way of kind of like, putting into view the, the the story a little bit more. And I guess I can kind of identify a little bit maybe what those pillars might be in this. The most obvious one is, you know, when he sits him down by the fireplace and he tells him that he's dying and kind of have this reaction from everybody. And then just from that, you get to know how everyone feels about him. Obviously, Chaz is not, he's not about second chances then. And then you have Richie who gives him a, sympathetic hug at the end so you're seeing how that everyone is different and it's a good thing that richie doesn't have a thing against his father because we're going to be too busy with his storyline with margot and margot is not a big fan of her father but it's not like she has this incredible rage against him like Chaz does because we're going to be focusing on her thing so it's kind of like 
balancing out what your character's needs are so you're not overflowing the, the narrative either. It's almost like an orchestra, you know, you don't want too much violin on this part and then you want to hear. So do you have that pillar? I think another pillar is Richie's suicide because then that also brings everyone back together again. There's like, I guess what you would call in action movies set pieces, you know, like James Bond, there's going to be an action scene in Mexico City. This is our big set piece. So like that for storytelling, I think a lot of writers tend to do set pieces. So this is kind of like a big scene where things are going to shift tremendously this way. And the great thing about having an ensemble is that you create the illusion of time. You're not seeing this character for a couple scenes. So when you come back, you can have off screen growth or off screen sort of there's this illusion that time went by and now they're maybe in a different place and, and you don't have to get into details as to like, you know, you kind of leave it to the audience to kind of fill in those gaps. So I think that the film does that a lot, too. You know, you go and pick up if you were to take everyone's character scenes and just do like a whole video of just their scenes, I'm sure it would be maybe like 15 minutes or less for each. But because you they're scattered everywhere, it creates the illusion of their character arc and their growth, I guess. But it's a very unique script, so it's kind of hard to like pinpoint all of those moments. But that's why I feel like it, it, it kind of feels like a play sometimes. Yeah, I think it's so important to have characters who react to the same conditions in a completely different way. And that initial scene with Royal returning to his family and Richie is being supportive. And, and that's already been set up with a little bit of context in the past with the fact that Richie was selected as being a bit special by his father. And so he took him to the dogfights and no one else. Essentially, it's also the reaction of Chaz that by giving us these two stark contrasts, you can see how two people who grew up in the exact same household with the exact same father react completely differently to his return. That's what makes these characters interesting. It's the fact that they are reacting differently to the exact same condition. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue is very simple, but brilliant at the same time. That dialogue about uh, Richie just says, Rachel's buried at that graveyard too. And Royal says, who? And Chaz <laughs> says, my wife. And Royal just says, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, that moment is so. It, I mean, it's darkly funny, isn't it? It's it's very funny, but there's something really dark about that as well. The fact that yeah, if his own father. It this is the most important thing that happens in Chaz's life, and it's completely affected him to the extent that he's now giving his two boys so much survival training because he's obsessed with making sure that they're safe so that the same thing doesn't happen to them. But the fact that his father doesn't even know the name of his wife because he's yeah. been kind of exiled from the family, it's, yeah. it's very, very funny, but also very dark. And it just yeah. it gives us immediately in that room, we know these different individuals have completely different life experiences and different perceptions of the world and different perceptions of their own family. Yeah. And, and like you say, it's, it's darkly funny, but it's efficient in revealing us who Royal is and revealing the, the relationship that he has with his kids. You know, I love the little bit where how he introduces Margot to people, you know, as his adopted daughter. I just like, mm -hmm. it's brilliant. Like this small little moment, but obviously that's not okay. How do you introduce a, 
little girl like that, you know, just kind of single her out from the family like that, you know. So, yeah, it's funny, but it it, it speaks volumes as to who, who these characters are, which I thought that was the brilliance of it. Yeah, and Royal himself as a symbol of patriarchy in the sense that he is the father of this family. He he takes on some of those aspects of conservative traditional culture in that sense. He takes on some of these these aspects of the rational side of society, the the very scientific data-based side of society. He just upfront introduces her as his adopted child. There's no feeling involved in that. There's no right. There's, there's no concern. Yeah, there's no concern for the actual emotional well-being of his family. He thinks in terms of what is true and what is false and just stating these facts. And you can see in his children this need for recognition beyond measurable achievement. That's what was missing in their in their childhood was so much of the focus was on what they could do instead of how they felt, how they, mm. how they were actually going to grow into responsible, mature, happy individuals. That doesn't happen to these children because they've been pushed to achieve. And right. um, there's a great other line of dialogue a bit later on where Royal says to Margot, used to be a genius. And she, sa- she replies, no, I didn't. And it's just been so obvious to her for so long now that this was all just a facade that she was never a genius she was just a normal person a normal girl who was writing these plays and everyone was acting as if she was some sort of prodigy but in reality she was just doing what she liked doing and it didn't deserve all of that acclaim it didn't deserve so much focus and attention on that side of her there was more of her to take care of than just when her next play was going to come out. Right. Then, you know, her, you know, putting away cigarettes because she didn't want to be found out, um, which I found that fascinating. You know, I just thought that, like, why would that be the one thing that she wouldn't tell people? You know, there's it's almost like this very small act of rebellion of keeping people away. You know, like, if you think about the psychology of it, it's not like cigarette smoking is that frowned upon. You know what I mean? Even when even when her mom does find out, she says, well, I don't think you should do it. You know, she doesn't exactly freak out that much. Um, yep. But it's it, 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 it reveals a lot more subconsciously that, you know, she just doesn't like getting close to people. There's this cautious energy that she has around people, even her own family. Yeah, she's very secretive. And that secrecy, I think, is reflected around the different family members in varying degrees. Mm-hmm. And the the big irony is that it's it's all compartmentalized within this household. There's so many secrets in all of the different rooms. There's secrets in Margot's life. There's secrets in Richie's life. There's secrets in Royal's life and Ethelene's and Chaz's. They, they all have these things they're not really revealing to each other because it is what they're afraid of most of all, I think, is is being open with each other. And that mm. part of the second chance narrative as it goes through the film is that eventually the secrets need to come out in order for the characters to change, mm-hmm. that they need to start being a bit more honest about who they are in order to move forward because they are 
otherwise dragging themselves down. Eli is basically tempering any kind of real rationalization or thoughts about what's going on in his life by constantly keeping himself under the influence. And so I think other characters are doing this to varying degrees as well, the extent to which they're just trying to keep as much as they can about themselves hidden away and compartmentalized as opposed to being out in the open. And when these things do come out into the open, they're not really as bad as everyone suspected. You know, when when Ethelene does decide to remarry, mm. it upsets Royal. But in reality, what relationship did they really have there? Essentially, there is more of a need for them to all move on than to try and dwell in the past and in this nostalgia for a time where all the children were special and you know the family was supposedly happy, but that never really existed anyway. It's something that they believe existed. There's a lot of depth in in this writing. I agree, like this is why this is such an interesting one to talk about, but also why it's a hard one to talk about. It's because there's a lot more depth in there. And Wes Anderson is essentially doing what a good magician does, essentially. There's enough distraction from the trick that's going on in front of our very eyes, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is very well done through this surreal setting where everything takes place as well. And usually we do talk more about the screenplay, but I think that the location scouting for this film is something that's worth mentioning. That New York City doesn't feel like New York City in the year 2001. Mm. And yet it also feels more authentic than most other films set in New York City in a way. It's, it's a very odd kind of effect that he that they have achieved through very careful selection of location and the background scenery that they allow to come into the frame to focus on this this older architecture and this sense that there's only really one moment in the entire film where it ever stands out as being actually in the year 2001, and that's when the bellboy Dusty, who is posing as Royal's doctor, gets a message on his pager. And we know the pager really didn't exist in the 70s, but basically otherwise, everything from the soundtrack to the costume, to the locations, it all feels like it's set in the 1970s. Right. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's where he places the camera as well. I think, you know, he's got a very storybook kind of vibe to his visuals. You know, if for our listeners, if you're watching the film, you know, he, he tends to move the camera from left to right, right to left, up and down. He likes the whole movement of like, you have the frame there, then you move to the right, and then back to the left again, and then over to the left in one location, but it's it's moving to different points of view, but staying from one position, which gives it this sort of detached, you, you're slightly removed from the action. There's rarely any shots where it's kind of like going in and out of houses or what you would call like a, a track where you're going in and out of rooms and stuff like that. Like it's all very... Frames within frames, which gives it that very storybook, like you're like a novel does come to life. I think uh, the main example of that is the very ending after the cars crash and the firefighters come and, you know, the camera moves from this little moment on the back of the truck and then it like camera goes up and now there's this little moment in the balcony. 
goes back to the fire truck and there's this other moment with the dog but the shot never cuts and you have that cool little going from left to right it's almost like you're reading a book you know you're going from left to right and you're seeing all these different little moments being transpired i think that also kind of gave it that very unique feel to the movie as well you know it feels like a but i think that's all his films anyways but he 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 loves doing that he he's very symmetrical about stuff and i i've read that he actually before because he usually works with the same dp but when they first started working together he would have them get a ruler and make sure that you know everything was precisely symmetrical which is great i mean i don't think every movie has to be like that but i love it like my ocd feels really happy mm. when i see that because i could tell right off the bat like everything's been measured and it does have this fairy tale quality to it almost it doesn't feel um grungy or you know like you know those very indie films it, it just feels like a fairy tale in a way i don't know how to describe it but i love it yeah and uh... To, to me, Wes Anderson is kind of the heir to the cinematic tradition that you can tell that he really watches older films and takes a lot of inspiration in them, in particular the films of Orson Welles. And yet he's not someone who is just emulating what he's seen done before. He goes in with his unique take on something, but he's in conversation with the cinema of the past. And that's a very important thing to do in terms of becoming part of the cinematic canon is to be referential to the past. Quentin Tarantino probably is another director who is constantly in communication with the cinema that he is inheriting from that has come before and knows when to honor it and knows when to put a different spin on it. And so with Wes Anderson, you see these these older films that he's inspired by, The Magnificent Ambersons would be one of them, but that's a black and white film. So his response is a film that's in beautiful, vivid color the whole way through. And there's just this kind of interesting dynamic between the two. You can see there might be influence there, but he's constantly saying, but it's not, I'm not boxing myself in. I'm not being limited to what came before. I'm not trying to, simply emulate what came before i just take inspiration from it and his his choice of how he tells the story visually through the shots that he chooses and through the positioning of the camera and through transitions and things like that that's where this this whole dialogue with the whole history of cinema starts to come in and yeah i think that's a worthy thing to note because when we look at screenplays obviously in theory, any director could take this screenplay and turn this into a film. But I think with Wes Anderson, you you need to read his screenplays knowing how he's going to put his own unique spin on this story as well, because the two elements will combine to tell the full story. Yeah, I mean, that is the upside, is that I'm sure he was thinking of visuals that kind of were going with what he was writing. But again, to iterate stuff that we've said in podcasts, before i mean i don't think there's a i think rules are meant to be broken but there's definitely certain guidelines that i think are very useful and uh i think a very useful guideline is when writing a script is to not give too much visual direction you know technical direction i think is um kind of takes away from the, the 
the reading of it and it confuses things too much. And even though, as we've discussed, you know, he's got a very specific vision for how it's all going to come to life visually, he doesn't burden the script with it. You know, he doesn't specify anything of how he's going to direct it. Instead, we're getting details on who these characters are. And I think like any good director, you know, you're kind of the, you're responsible for these characters. You're kind of their caretaker and you're going to take them out and you're going to honor who these people are. And I think, you know, his way of showing that in the script and Owen Wilson uh, was to give these little, little details about who the characters are, especially in the beginning when we're being introduced to them. Uh, but then obviously later that's translated into this beautiful pastel colors. It, but it's just it's just such a visual treat to to watch something that you know uh, was given great care, was given so much attention to detail, and there's just so much to look at in every frame. There's I'm sure if you would pause most scenes and you look in the background, I'm sure you will find a little detail that can say something about the characters because it's, I don't think it was just. It's just visual for visual sake. I think a lot of it is done to service the character, to service the story. And I think ultimately that is the most important thing as a director is to service those things when you're creating a visual palette. So that's what I love about his films. And and then this one is no different where you could see in the background of each of these characters' rooms or, or their offices or, you know, whatever, you'll find little, little Easter eggs to who their characters are. And it's just... It's just amazing the amount of detail that he puts into it. And that ties into what you were saying before as well about essentially giving the audience a sense that these characters also have a life off screen, that Mm -hmm. they're not just characters that change during the time we actually see them, but also during those in-between times. Mm -hmm. And yes, those backgrounds, those rooms, the, the places that they inhabit... Richie's tent, for example, you see his little toy cars are lined up in his tent as well. It's mm-hmm. just this continuity from childhood. All the mice with the, the, yeah. the, the Dalmatian mice that are coming Chances out of mice, like yeah. different scenes. You know, they're just these little Easter eggs that it's just so much fun because it just uh, it just colors the whole thing a little bit more vividly for you as a as an audience member. And this is combined with character transformation these characters do not stay still and Mm -hmm. it is when royal comes back into the household that a lot of the transformation starts to happen there's more interactions between all of the different characters and therefore things naturally need to progress royal's plan of course is to pretend he has stomach cancer infiltrate the household pretend to be so ill he can't leave so that they would be heartless to kick him back out onto the street. But obviously he's got Pagoda working with him on this and he's convinced one of the bellboys at the hotel where he used to live to pretend to be a doctor. He's managed to get his hands on some medical supplies and set up this fake ward, essentially, in <laughs> in one of the rooms of his house. But of course he's also sneaking hamburgers for for lunch and dinner and <laughs> it's a very comic scenario but it's based on some some real dark truths as well about who he is and the extent to which he's trying to manipulate trying to take advantage of the family and i think when that 
charade falls apart when he can no longer pretend that he's ill and he's been exposed by Henry. And that's a brilliant scene. I think that's probably one of the most effective gripping scenes in the whole film is when Henry reveals he knows that Royal has been lying and it's because he had a wife who died of stomach cancer. So he knows mm. what it looks like. That that scene, I think, is extremely powerful because it starts to suggest that Henry himself is maybe a character much more worthy of our sympathy than most of the other characters in this film actually are. And there's always been this kind of horrible tension with these little hints of racism as well, kind of running through it up to that point. And I think it's when Henry kind of becomes victorious in that struggle between him and Royal that Royal more gracefully accepts defeat and starts to focus his attention on actually being a positive influence to his family as opposed to trying to take them back and be in control and regain what he thinks he was missing by not having his family. The way he puts it, I think this is probably the best line in the entire film is when he says, you know, Richie, this illness, this closeness to death, it's been very profound for me. I feel like a different person. I really do. And Richie says, dad, you were never dying. And he says, but I'm going to live. <laughs> and it's that realization that he is alive, that this he's not going to die. It's so funny that it was actually this fake scenario that actually made him realize that life was something worth living as opposed to a real <laughs> a real illness scare but still yeah. it had the effect that it needed to have and you can compare that to Richie who actually does try to kill himself and his death is not symbolic he genuinely almost does die that is also what gets him to transform because he knows that if he's going to live, he's going to have to live well. He's going to have to open up and tell Margot why he tried to kill himself. Mm. And it, it's no longer a secret that he can hide because the burden becomes too heavy. And I think after those two moments, that's when the story really starts to turn into this tale that is written on Royal's gravestone, essentially, that he tragically died trying to save his family from the wreckage of a sinking ship. Mm. Yeah. And uh, well, a couple of things to kind of add to that is, you know, when he says uh, these last six weeks have been the best six weeks of my life. And then Alec Baldwin as the narrator says that he only realized that that was true until he said it in that moment. And I think that sets him on his journey for the rest of the film. You know, he goes and gets a job. He stops trying to connect to his family in this way that he was doing. And it changes from him trying to just better himself and to try to change and, and shift. And, you know, as he told Richie, when Richie finds him in the elevator, it's like, well, I was just trying to do better and hoping that someone would notice. So, you know, that's when things start getting better for him when he goes on his own journey. And something I wanted to say before, too, that you mentioned, which is, you know, these characters finally start being honest about different things. And I think that that is a theme uh, that I didn't realize was there either, but a lot of the truths do come out at the end. I mean, you have uh, even Margot's cigarette secret comes out at the very end and yep. everyone's, 
whatever they were hiding, I think everything just comes out in the open. And I think the most, to me, what I felt was the most moving was Chaz. You know, at the very end when Eli crashes into the house and after everything was was done and Royal goes and, and, and goes and talks to Chaz and it's it's the first time I think Chaz opens up about what he went through. And he says, I've had a really rough year. And it's the first time I think we see him acknowledge that loss in an honest way and truthful way, as opposed to trying to trying to make things or trying to make sure things are safe, trying to make sure that, you know, everything is uh, good for his boys and trying to keep them away from his grandfather. I think he finally reveals kind of what he's going through in that moment. So again, the whole honesty theme of finally opening up, I think is what ends up connecting all these characters together. Yeah, Alec Baldwin's interjection that you that you mentioned that's comparable. Maybe it is the best line of dialogue actually as opposed to the one I just mentioned from Royal, but they're basically equivalent. They both demonstrate the same thing, which is that these realizations, these sudden aha moments, eureka moments, you only realize they happened after the fact. They're never planned. They're never the, these character transformations are never just set out as this is going to be the trajectory of my life. This is my plan for my future. There's this moment in which everything suddenly makes sense, this moment of inspiration. And that does happen to all of the different characters at, at these different stages. In terms of them getting their second chance, they also need that moment where they realize what it is they were meant to be doing all along. And it does come naturally. For Chaz, it comes after Royal has saved his children. Mm -hmm. And it's this sudden realization that no amount of preparedness training or anything like that is a substitute for having a strong father figure there to guide the boys. That was this sudden realization. It all suddenly makes sense to him. And it's important that this was introduced into the screenplay a bit earlier, but Royal has been taking Arya and Uzi out secretly and mm. exposing them to as much danger as he possibly can. They're running in front of cars, they're riding horses, they're going to the dock fights, they're going and doing all the dangerous things that Chaz would never let them do, because that's what life is really about. He's exposing them to life itself, as opposed to this protected bubble in which Chaz wants them to live because mm. he has something he needs to change as well. And it's this understanding that accidents happen, but it doesn't mean that everyone is doomed because one terrible thing has happened in the past. They still need to go on living and enjoying everything that they can in life. And I think Richie goes through a very similar experience when he does try to kill himself and I think it's maybe why Wes Anderson wrote this story was to highlight that story about Richie's attempted suicide. He was very influenced by Le Faux Follet, which is a, a French film from the 1960s by Louis Mal, which is about a man who is actually called Alan, <laughs> turns well. out. Um, <laughs> But he, uh, he's a recovering alcoholic who has been living in this, this care facility in Versailles for a while. And 
it's kind of time for him to re-enter society. And he's resistant to that. He's resistant to going back and trying to move on because he feels very doomed. He feels like he's fated to always be an alcoholic and he's never going to be able to turn his life around. And he utters this line of dialogue that Richie also utters, which is, tomorrow I'm going to kill myself. Mm. Which is what Richie says before he actually doesn't wait until tomorrow. He just does it. Mm. And Richie's Richie's suicide is an inversion of Le Faux Follet because it gives this character this second chance at life. And Richie wakes up and writes his suicide note after he's regained consciousness. <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice that second chance in his, in that little bit either of his particular character arc. But, you know, going back to, I wanted to say something about Royal that you were saying. I think another thing that I really enjoyed about his relationship with Chaz and kind of going back to what you were saying about the Ari and Uzi, you know, how he's kind of overbearing and he's kind of like putting them through constant rigorous exercises to make sure they're safe. There's this one moment where Royal tells Chaz, you know, don't go easy on them. You know, I don't want you to go through what I went through. Kind of like putting on the spotlight their own relationship. And uh, I think that was a very small but a powerful moment too. But like most Wes Anderson films, like those powerful moments are, are there very briefly in a way that, and also in a way that it doesn't have this melodrama to them. There's no tears. There's no weepy music i think that's part of his style too you know you can have these very beautiful moments between characters and it's there for you to for you to get but it's it's something that you as an audience member have to kind of like really pay attention to the music's not going to dictate that this is a very important scene and that you have to feel this i think it's a that's what i, I love about his storytelling is that you have to be engage with the characters and be on that journey as opposed to like, you know, just sort of sitting back and being told what to feel. And I think this is a story and a screenplay where you have to kind of read between the lines a little bit, get the little clues that you were mentioning earlier that are there and you're constructing the story in your head subconsciously as you're going along with it. Because once you get to the end, like if you look at the, the last scene, it's kind of a very beautiful, emotional moment but you wouldn't think that that's where the whole story was going because it is very slightly cynical and dark and and all these other things but subconsciously he's been building this very emotionally fitting ending to the whole story yeah let's talk about these resolutions and this is a screenplay that is both complex and sparse at the same time its sparsity is deceptive and also a lot of the depth and fullness of the writing where you feel that you're reading a lot of information is also deceptive because it's actually these very small little moments that carry the maximum impact in the film. But just in terms of these trajectories and these characters who essentially go through these certain stages of life, there's the initial promise and potential of youth. And then there's the reality, the lack of maybe achieving everything they thought they should have achieved by a certain point in their lives, 
there's this retreat into cynicism and depression and starting to hide away a little bit. And then there's the transformation and return to life, essentially, at the end. This this kind of moving on from the thing that got them all stuck in the first place. And so for Margot and Richie, that moment is when they come together at the house. Richie has run away from the hospital, checked himself out, and he goes back to his tent and finds that Margot is in his tent listening to music. And they finally get to chat and talk about what's been going on with both of them this whole time. And Margot really leaves it with that line, which is, I think we're just going to have to be secretly in love with each other and leave it at that, Richie. And that feels like a strong resolution. I think it, even though it's just such a simple line, I think it it's suddenly just this acknowledgement of what the whole problem was about and that now that they're being honest about it, they can move on, they can move forward again because, you know, Richie's not going to have these kind of breakdowns because it seemed like it was actually the burden, the the weight of carrying these secrets around with him that was bringing him down. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, one for her as well, you know, I think she eventually, one that starts when she leaves Rally, you know, because she was very unhappy, but um, I think just coming to terms with her emotions about him and the whole situation uh, is a good resolution for them as well. Um, and their resolution is not directly tied to their fathers as much as, let's say, Chaz. I think um, that resolution is kind of a little bit separate. But I think kind of going back to your point that you were saying that the ending is kind of like going back to fixing sort of what had undone everything for everybody and moving on. And like, it's almost like that is kind of the beat at the end, which is why I thought that Royal being the primary sort of the captain of the stories, you know, and then you have at the end sort of like, this is the man that was in many ways, the, the reason why everyone's lives went crazy and, you know, ended up with all these very terrible situations and figuratively and physically, there's a death to that. You know, there's this sort of final resolution, but he was able to do what he set out to do before he died. I don't think he knew he was going to die that that quickly afterwards, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's the fact he had prepared for his death that... Yeah kind of saved him and Richie does something similar by almost killing himself he prepares for what it would have been like to have died yeah uh but he definitely you know takes care of all his unfinished business before he 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 goes one of them which is to set uh ethylene free he lets her move on you know you have a family that was brought together again because even when Royal wasn't a part of it, they were still all scattered. You know, they weren't all hanging out without him. They were all literally not a family. So I think by him coming back, he was able to put the family back together. You know, so that might not have happened if he hadn't come back. They might have just kept going their own separate ways. The fact he does the right thing by finally divorcing Etheline and giving her her second chance, which she's been hesitant about and there's various points in in her story with Henry where she feels very uncomfortable about their relationship even though she shouldn't simply because of this weight of the fact she is still married to Royal 
is is hanging over her and she like most of the other characters goes through that kind of transformation because she starts out the film in the prologue by being this character who has written a book on the psychology of raising geniuses who is more invested in the children's success than ethylene it's it's the fact she has promised the world through her research and you know the these secrets of how to Mm. create the perfect children and of course we all know by the end that that's nonsense that that's not how the the children turned out and she gets that second chance at love and she finds a man who is right for her someone who actually will honor and respect her and treat her very well and will love her authentically which royal being a bit of a scoundrel never never ever did you know Mm -hmm. and and so it's that's kind of a fulfilling ending for that character's story as well is the fact that we know that she was able to move on from that the situation she was in at that crisis moment Chaz I think we've talked about him in in a lot of detail but again it's it's going back to that story of learning to overcome tragedy learning to overcome heartbreak and to assume a role of responsibility and and guidance as opposed to being too protective towards his children yeah and I like that moment where um you know he was the last one to see his father or he was the one that saw his father die essentially in the ambulance so that that was a fitting uh moment for the both of them you know they were the ones that were the most apart and they were the closest together at the very end which you know I, i feel like in writing it's just such a beautiful like you say it could be a drama film if you were to write down all these beats the way we're talking about them and and set it down like you know on a paper anyone that would read it wouldn't necessarily see the comedy in it. You would just see, oh, wow, yeah, this is a very powerful story about a family. But it's just so fucking funny. Like, it's just, um, I love that you get all these moments without the melodrama and we get all this wonderful humor. And I think even more so the humor, I think, brings attention to all these issues and all these things that these characters are going through by using humor rather than some emotional stakes or, you know, dramatic music or, or what have you. I think it could be turned into a drama. But I love that the humor reveals a lot of these very human things that are happening in the story. Would you say that Royal is a martyr in any way? Someone who has to sacrifice himself for the good of the family? Well, I, I, I think without wanting to, yes, in a way. I think, you know, I don't think he meant to do that. I don't think he was, I mean, I think, you know, he wanted to reconnect out of, out of necessity and out of guilt, perhaps, you know, very Mm -hmm. selfish reasons, I think, in the beginning. I think that was his motivation. It was very selfish. But I think as the story went on, it, it turned into something else. His whole little act, bringing the whole family together, I think he was that in a way, but I don't think he meant to if that makes sense. I think in just the span of the story, him dying at the end and bringing everyone together was just the way it worked out. Yeah, I think it's that once he starts doing some selfless acts, he starts to really have a huge impact on the rest of the family. Yeah. And that that is a there is a wonderful moral message, it seems, underlying a lot of what happens. Ultimately is that that 
it's good. It's good for everyone once the patriarch stops trying to to dominate everything and starts to step back a little and listen and starts to try and really engage emotionally with with his family. Yeah, I think that was the life lesson there, which I think it's very true to life is when you sort of stop trying to make things happen and you focus on yourself, then that's usually when things start working out. That's exactly what happened with him. You know, he stopped trying to impose himself on the family and instead he he did the opposite even. I think once he got that job, once he started feeling better about himself, I think that's when he gave Ethelene the divorce. He started mm-hmm. giving back. He started letting go. So yeah, that, that was a, that's a great arc for the character. Yeah, he reaches that more enviable, higher state, I think, where whereby he's in a position to to give. He's more responsible. He's not taking advantage. Right. He's not manipulating. Yeah, I, I think it was a really great story for us to take a look at, and I hope that we've been useful in, in breaking this down and understanding it, because this is actually, I would say, probably the most complicated screenplay we've looked at in a long time. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me, just from a writing perspective, is just how much care can go to a characters, you know, and especially if you're writing a script that has a ton of characters and that each character has a very an important function in your story and that each character is going to go through an arc. I think this is a great example of how to weave all these characters. I think what helped it too was that it was a family, but nonetheless, I think just, yeah, I was just impressed by how much attention to detail in the characters and also in the, in the scenes and how to write comedy out of these very kind of dark circumstances sometimes and how to use the comedy to bring light to that specific circumstance, but laughing at it and also becoming very well aware of what the situation is by laughing about it. I think that's a very, very uh, good skill to have. I'm not quite sure how one does that. Well, they always say that writing comedy is tougher than writing drama and then writing irony on top of that i think Mm -hmm. is even more complicated but this is a great example of that and i think most of uh wes anderson's scripts and films are a great example of that so if you're going down that route of irony and and dark comedy this is uh wes anderson's a master at that yeah i think at some point we will have to look at more of wes anderson's scripts because they are very unique and at the same time, very instructive in terms of the amount of potential that's there in a screenplay. He mm-hmm. constantly seems to be pushing the boundaries of what to expect and the the generic kind of structures that mm. often screenwriting, I think, is is taught as a formulaic task. And it's not that at all. If you want to make something brilliant you really have to be innovative and original and responsible with the parts of the screenplay that need to happen while also Mm. trying to push those boundaries and figure out where you can introduce some more wit some more irony some more intelligence some more of real life onto the page i think that's what wes anderson does really well yeah what i really was impressed by it too is just making sure that you just really enjoy your characters. I think this is the reason why it worked. 
and a lot of the reason why it felt like assured, confident writing. Because I don't know about you, but like usually by page five or six of reading a script, I can kind of tell the the level of confidence. And I don't even know how I would even articulate how to even I would pick up on that. But you pick up on it somehow. There's subconsciously, I don't even know how you do it. But after reading a few pages, you this is a very confident script. I don't even know how to define how that feels or why you would feel that way, except for everything that we just talked about. But I think maybe one reason is that you just got to know your characters really well to the point where the writing is just easy. Once you're on final draft or whatever program you use and you're writing down your dialogue, I think having done all that work probably does, does help you with the, the final draft. Yeah, it is kind of reminiscent of the um, the Supreme Court obscenity trial where the judge said, I know it when I see it. That is exactly <laughs> what what you're describing with those first 10 pages. You just know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, if, it, if it's not there, you just have to keep working, keep rewriting until it until you can capture some of that magic, I think. Yeah. And I think it just comes from that, from just like you, you feel like he knows these characters right off the bat. You know, I think that's maybe one of the secrets. I think most scripts that we that I that we read for this podcast, I think they all really know their characters really well. Yeah. One thing to remember with with this kind of writing as well is that until the film is made, your screenplay is an extended pitch. You know, you've got to declare why this story is worth reading in the first place. And that's what your first 10 pages are. They're this statement of, you should keep reading, you should... I'm so confident that this thing is worth making that I'm giving you the full screenplay and showing you the potential that I believe is in that story. And Mm. so, just like in a pitch meeting, you have to be really confident about what you've got, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I, I'm actually really excited for French Dispatch, which is coming out later this year, which is his latest film. So maybe we can do like a little special podcast when that comes out. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's hope that that one is not delayed or, you know, something is worked out. So we'll get to see it as soon as possible. Yeah. Well, it's already been delayed. It was supposed to come out this summer, but it's going to come out in the fall, which is not that far. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other conversation we could be having about whether or not the uh, the world of cinema is going to be able to financially survive something like lockdown, because I don't know if people do want to spend $20 to watch a new film at home, as opposed to the experience of going to the cinema, but still, that's another discussion to have another day. Yeah, yeah, we can get into that, so... Very good. And it's time to wrap up this recording, but I think this was a really great one for us to have talked about, and hopefully we'll be planning our next recording pretty soon. Yes. All right, well, thank you guys for listening. Um, Again, we're both, Will and I are in separate places. We're still in lockdown, but um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep pushing these out. Thank you again for listening and continuing to support the show. Next week, I'm going to bring out a very special episode, which is featuring 
Everett Brummage, who is the host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and we're going to be discussing the 2003 film Master and Commander and the screenplay written by John Coley and Peter Weir. So look out for that one coming just a week from now. And until next time, thank you and goodbye.